Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who uses bits to shift atoms. And in my spare time, I'm thinking whether the media companies in Asia will collapse with their video strategy. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today, I have Greg Armshaw, Head of Sales from Bright Cove Asia, who I know years back. Welcome, Greg. And it's finally good to have you here for the first time in my new studio and format. How are you doing? Hey Bernard, thank you for treating me to this new experience. We've been talking about this for a while, so it's great to finally meet you in this format. Yes, and I have always been energized every time when I meet you to discuss the digital trends moving across Asia Pacific. And it is actually my pleasure. We know each other years back when I think you were still the head of digital strategy and partnerships for Universal McCann, a very well-known creative media agency, right? Yes, yes. It was McCann World Group. When we first met, I was working across media and creative or marketing solutions as it became. But yes, you were in a startup when we were first met. That's right. And then subsequently, I went on the corporate track. And now I'm just an executive in an aircraft manufacturing company trying to sell unmanned aircraft vehicles. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a path. (laughs) But we got to get back to you. So I always like to start off by asking you, about your background, how did you start your career and subsequently evolve to as the head of sales for Bright Cove Asia? Sure. I trained as a civil engineer and my first job I was was actually writing and figuring configuring software for a printing company. I suppose the first step into what's eventually become my career was really just following a passion. I was into dance music as a young young 20-year-old in, in Manchester in the UK. I heard the launch transmissions for a brand new radio station. I, I got a job scheduling commercials for them. Now, it turned out that they were the first fully digital radio station. I suppose the genesis of what has become this strange path that you, you might want to call a career is uh, you know the pairing of, of technology and digital technology with uh, an understanding and a, and a use of, of media and entertaining people. And then subsequently, how do you eventually work on digital strategy partnerships and moving into a much more focused career on video platforms, for example, your current work with Bright Cove? Sure, yeah. So for most of the early years of my career, I was developing or configuring or helping people understand software or digital technologies better for several years in radio, several years in market research and, and fusing. I suppose now it'd be called big data, actually, you know, fusing data sources, etc., and then moving actually into the advertising and media environment to actually start building software. Anyone that had any kind of experience in the digital space, you know, started to get into conversations with customers as they started to embrace digital solutions and advertising. So it was kind of an organic path followed by, you know, customer need and, and just a, a general understanding of the space. First few years were in were in Europe. So at one point I was working for Classic FM, which had at the time, and this is before podcasting, I suppose, the biggest radio station in the world based on audience, just by streaming technologies at the time. But that very quickly changed in the way that video and uh, radio was delivered, changed. I started working in different ways with Asia within Universal McCann. I lobbied very hard to for a move to Hong Kong. So in t- 2006, I eventually moved to Hong Kong and I've been passionate about this region ever since. You landed in Singapore somewhere around 2010-11. That was probably where we met, right? Yes, 2010, exactly, yes. I want to ask you this. You have been through a, a pretty interesting non-linear path in your career journey. What are the interesting career lessons you have learned in the process? I think one of the big the big learnings, especially around developing software, is if, if there are humans in the process, they will they will always serve their own best interest, even if it's if that's not where they're supposed to do. <laughs> 
In my early days of developing software in the media environment, we built a lot of platforms to allow brands and advertisers to understand their media spend more clearly. Beautiful platforms where people can analyze investment data. But pretty much what happened is that those people just phoned up the same people that they phoned up all the time and asked them to run the reports for them. If there's a human in the process, they will always serve their own best interests. That's a very economics, invisible hand argument. So I wanted to come into asking what you're currently doing in Bright Cove. As I understand, it is a Boston, Massachusetts-based software company that does online video platform and it's actually publicly listed on NASDAQ. Can you tell us about what the company does and what is current footprint in Asia? Yeah, so Bright Cove is, yeah, like you say, a tech company. We're in the online video platform space, OVP. We are a company started, I believe, on or around or maybe slightly before YouTube. So there was a, in the in the early 2000s, there was a big growth in online video, potentially a little bit early from a monetization point of view. But anyway, uh, since around you know that kind of time, there's a number of organizations. And we've always been, Bright Cove has always been a B2B platform. We did dabble a little bit when having a branded platform early in our, in our life, but pretty much we're a B2B company. So we enable anyone who wants to build a business with, with video with a powerful and effective platform to, to do that. Now, that could be brands. An interesting one is Zero, actually, the financial software company out of New Zealand. They use video as a tool to, you know, for e-learning, for customer service and marketing. So they're able to go global with a very powerful use of video. But also other customers might be people like uh, South by Southwest or you know, Tribeca Film Festival, well, more and more, and I know that you want to talk about this a little bit later, more and more we're, we're powering television content owners to go online and build businesses that some may say compete and some may say complement their television and broadcast television services. So what is your current role and coverage within Black Cove Asia then? Yeah, so I head up new business for Asia. That does not include Japan and Korea. And I've deliberately not used the Asia Pacific because we also have a big team in, in uh, Australia and New Zealand. So Australia, New Zealand and Japan Korea are uh, especially strong teams. Uh, they do very well. The team based out of Singapore supports the rest of Asia. Uh, and I lead up, uh, up the new business team. So myself and my team are out, you know, speaking to customers on a, on a weekly basis, daily basis, talking about, you know, how they can build businesses with video. Yes, I totally agree with you. These days, when people say they're ahead of something from Asia Pacific, it could include or exclude China, Japan, and Korea. But, you know, for me, I actually have to cover Asia Pacific includes China, India, Australia, and New Zealand as well. So different people have different ways of thinking about that. But... I want to get to the main subject of the day because there are, I think, two interesting topics that we want to talk about. And I know you write a lot of your perspectives about what is happening in Asia through your LinkedIn post as well. So I want to start off first by talking at least about the digital in Asia Pacific versus US and Europe. I guess you have spent part of your career in Europe and the other half in Asia Pacific. What are the key differences in attitudes towards the internet and with, of course, the evolution from desktop to mobile in the last decade. This is an area which I'm, I just love and I love the differences that come from it. But also one of the interesting things and, and kind of, I suppose, behind this kind of question is actually how I've worked for American companies actually for all of my time in, in Asia. And, you know, there's somewhat of a desire for companies which are expanding globally to speak of Asia as a single location, especially when you're talking about internet tools. 
And, you know, it's clearly not the case. I know you you talk about this subject quite a lot on this podcast. And there's, I was just at a, the IAB Commerce Committee meeting. Actually, we just did a training this week. And, you know, the diversity of everything from payment, delivery, e-commerce platforms is so different in, in every country in this region that, first of all, you know, treat, calling calling it APAC is, is totally wrong from a practicality of doing business. But really, you know, if you take into account that every country has its own differences, I think the big the big one, and you touched on that a little bit, is really to look at, you know, the difference in markets is whether that market as a whole learned to use the internet with a mouse or whether they learn to use the internet with their thumb. I think those two things are, are very different. We have some markets in this region that use the mouse to learn to use the internet, and we have many more, especially by uh, by population who are, have learned to use the internet uh, with their thumb. And I think those the difference in where how you build business in those markets can be determined by by you know that simple simple difference. Do you think that even the way how the social practice in using these mobile applications or even desktop applications have also changed between US, Europe and Asia Pacific. I mean, in Asia Pacific, you have what I call the line cacao talk wechat access where the, the messaging apps have a very very different way of using it i mean people in china are not going to write long messages on the messaging app instead they turn on the audio and just put a message and what you get is the audio messaging in the process yeah this is so working in advertising you know there's been numerous trends about you know american-based people or north or european based people say you know, why do people use the qr code and you say well have we ever tried to go, tried writing on a mobile phone in chinese or japanese or any other non english language it's it's almost impossible <laughs> to do it efficiently so you know it, it's clear that you know there are some intrinsic challenges that non-English speaking people have when using a device which is you know primarily designed around the English language and the English keyboard so I, I actually uh, can actually help launch line in a number of markets you know it, it's amazing actually how different it is and how the genesis of starting to use a social network which is primarily based mobile based uh, you know changed the way that Asian Asian based people are using you know this kind of software there was something very interesting right at the start we realized that that uh, in Japan, that very few people had a had a profile which which was personally identifiable, you know, as as Facebook and other and other uh, platforms grew. And I think you know the somewhat more greater privacy of messaging apps is congruent with not only Japan but other other markets in uh, in this region. You know, we have Indonesia that was using BBM for a very long time. You know, a heavily encrypted service that uh, that that you could practically do anything on. So, you know, I think there's a there's a sense of privacy that you know, as a as a Caucasian guy, I have no idea what the genesis is of you know back in history. But I think you know, Asians are less inclined to to share their their opinions globally. I want to shift gears. I want to talk about advertising and video landscape across Asia Pacific. I want to start off by talking about Netflix because I think Netflix have shifted the OTT and video landscape to how customer access TV shows and videos. Has that also shifted the video landscape in Asia Pacific? Because I know that there are local players, for example, iFlix, there's Hulk. Where is this going in terms of how customers today or even the content producers are operating in this changing landscape within Asia Pacific itself? Yeah, Netflix had a massive impact. In fact, there's a couple of things in Asia, and let me classify by saying not China for the moment. But you know, there are a couple of things in this region that have the globalization. When Netflix went global, I think it was the first. I think it was January 2016. They 
they said, right, okay, we're, I think they were in 10 plus markets before that. And then they basically turned on the rest of the world. It rocked TV in this region to its core. I was working, or I still do work with the Cable and Satellite Broadcasters Association across the region. And, you know, before Netflix went global, they had a, yeah, we kind of do OTT, we'll go online at some point. And then all of a sudden, Netflix goes global and all of a sudden, like, wow, what are we going to do? That's only a couple of years ago. So that's, first of all, you know, they've picked, Netflix have picked up a, a premium subscriber. You know, many of the telcos in the way that telcos usually do, you know, sort partnerships with these OTT organizations to help, you know, stop their own churn. So Netflix, you know, went across the region very, very quickly and, you know, established in this region what is the same as everywhere else that people want their content on demand you know watching the way that my children especially my nine-year-old interacts with we don't have broadcast television anymore haven't done for for quite some years but when he visits his his grandparents in the uk he he looks at me when i try to describe to him what television is as if it's broken you know it says i want to watch another show or i want to see watch that again it's like no it's just broadcast tv so, you know, the on-demand generation, you want to call it that, you know, the on-demand way that we now work or manage our lives with, with these mobile devices has essentially meant that, that Netflix has, has had a has had a massive act. You know, one of the things is that pay TV globally has been predominantly non-local local content, so American or, or some European content. So, you know, what happened very quickly is that uh, in different parts of the region is that, you know, that, let's call it Hollywood content for want of a better word, you know, that Hollywood content kind of saturated quite quickly. And, you know, there's now, if you go to you know, the industry events in the region, there's now a massive hunger for locally originated or locally inspired content. Now, this kind of rides the back on the back a little bit of Asia becoming a, uh, a bigger market for Hollywood. Now, you know, there's pretty much a, an Asian star or an Asian back set to any movie, etc., that, that has a, a global view. So, you know, it, there's a lot of trends coming together, but I would say that, you know, you touched on whether Netflix can compete with local competitors. I think there's always a place for Netflix for Hollywood, but local content definitely is what drives greater consumption in local in, in the markets of Asia. I think there's one thing that I noticed about US analysts talking about Netflix. And I think this is something that's really, that they have actually undervalued what Netflix is doing in Asia Pacific region. One of the strategies I thought what Netflix have been doing in this region is that they actually work with local content producers and they actually distribute original content. I mean, I've watched a couple of interesting Bollywood movies through Netflix that's only available in their channel. And that is something that I have not seen before. My daughter recently have actually watched a movie, I think The Incredibles, via a Netflix through a mobile phone. She's basically just sit there with my sister-in-law and two hours and that was the entire movie at a scale. So I think these trends that are actually changing also changes how these strategies in Asian market is not really talked a lot about in the US. And I think they are grossly undervalued with what they are already doing in, in Asia Pacific. Am I right to say that in my observation? So, I mean, I think there's an issue. I mean, I know your passion is to bring, you know, you, this, this podcast is analyzed Asia, you know, your passion is to bring the Asian point of view. So, and, and this is something that, you know, I've always had to fight against while I've been living here. You know, the, for the most part, broad America does not listen to, you know, the voice, the, the, the volume of the messaging coming out of America about every topic, advertising, you know, the startups, et cetera, is so strong that it's, it, inevitably it's, you know, it doesn't 
acknowledge the market conditions in the rest of the world. And the, the organizations that we work and the research that we do ourselves, it's clear that local content is incredibly important. You know, any, anyone with a reasonable business sense and, you know, Netflix have a number of people in region now will be embracing locally produced content. The interesting thing, though, is that while the technology has scaled, the number of producers of this kind of content hasn't scaled massively, you know. Some, you know, it's, it has given newer producers the opportunity, but, you know, if you're investing a million or two million dollars or more an episode in something, you are, you want to make sure that you're dealing with people that, who can make this kind of content engaging. So there is, I think there's a bit of a, a crush in terms of the actual production capabilities, being able to make this good content. But also one of the things that you just mentioned there was watching a, you know, a full form movie on a mobile phone. You know, and this comes back to the the difference between somebody who learned to use the internet on a on a on a big screen device or a bigger screen device and a, and a mobile device. There's no expectation in places like India that the mobile device is too small to watch something like this on. There's no sign that it's a compromise. There's no sign that it's it feels like I'm, I'm losing out on something. So, and also in the multi generational homes of Asia. You know, plugging in a mobile, you know, the headphones into your mobile device and watching your own content rather than what's being broadcast on the in the living room is 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 privacy, it's independence, it's you know, it's what every teenager or young person is looking for. In that kind of- That's what we used to want too, but unfortunately, in our days, watching TV is a communal event, right? We forced to watch what our parents watch, but today with the mobile phone, that has changed our way of thinking about it. That's all. Yeah, you can see that in every restaurant in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a very strict policy. So my daughter is one of the few kids that sits on a dinner table outside in restaurants without a smartphone or even an iPad. Coming back, because we talk a lot about the video content space, but there's also another shift that's actually happening that is in advertising. I, I think this is also something, a narrative that has actually happened in the last two years. If you take the advertising landscape before 2016, before the Trump administration came in, what has happened was that the US companies tend to do this cut and paste approach. Whatever works in US should work for the rest of the world. But lately, in the last two years, these US companies have completely lost their dominance in Asia Pacific. It it seems to mirror what is happening with the way how the international relations are actually happening. So you're also starting to see the Chinese companies now coming into the Asia-Pacific region, but with a different paradigm, like trying to localize things, trying to invest in the local champions. I mean, watching Google investing in JD in the last two days, I think Google is one of that few companies that are learning not to build their own and start to localize their play in the region. So how has advertising shifted in Asia-Pacific, in your view? Because you you work with these clients, you get to feel the beat of the industry. Yeah, so again, you used Asia-Pacific. So let me, yeah, Australia, New Zealand is more like, it's an amazingly strong advertising market. So uh, let's just exclude that for a moment. It doesn't mirror really Asia. Japan, again, I think Dentsu became the second or third biggest advertising group in the world just on its, its footprint in Japan. And, you know, we could do a whole podcast about Japan on its own. So let's just put that aside for one moment. Some of the things that you just said in that question just resonated with me. So I think, so you're right, digital advertising in Asia Pacific really only became, you know, any reasonable budget when the, you know, these globalized companies, the multinational companies basically did a deal with Facebook or Google 
Google globally and then allocated that deal down to the local market. So Indonesia might be, you know, number 10 in the world for, you know, a consumer packaged goods company. So they say, okay, so you, here's, your, here's your Facebook budget, go away and spend it. So really digital became, you know, it was driven by spending on social. Now, what you alluded to is, you know, I think the, the issues with, you know, what, so how the algorithms of social networks, you know, do not serve the customer or, or potentially the advertiser. Correct me if I'm wrong. But still, you know, these platforms are incredibly strong and much of the engagement on digital is around Google and is around Facebook and other and other social networks. So certainly on digital advertising spend, they still take a lot of the budget. Has there been a change in attitudes? Yes, there has to some extent, but it's not massively impacting current spending. I mean, I think there are some intrinsic issues with advertising industry as a whole in terms of how it exists when such large dominant platforms like Tencent, like Alibaba, like Facebook, like Google are taking such large amounts of, of advertising spend. You know, because you remember that Google isn't just search, it actually powers many of the, you know, much of the ad buying and powers the online platforms of many publishers as well. So Google are in there even when it's a, a, a an online publisher making money. Is that answering your question or have I gone off in the wrong direction? Maybe I will take the question a little bit further. I mean, if you think about advertising for brands, right? Traditionally, we're talking about these strong, big, advertising media groups like for example the WPP group that's led by Martin Sorrell and then you have uh, publicists you have Group M and you know Starcom and all the rest of these it's very predicated on relationships I mean even in 2018 I'm still hearing people from these organizations trumpeting that we got the biggest media budget to spend but their real media budget spend is actually 95% non-digital but 5% digital, which is clearly a joke, right? Because I have well, no... I don't know about the percentages. I don't know about yeah, the but I hear this always... all the time from them. <laughs> and, they, they, and they will always trumpet the fact that they have the relationship. But I think this dynamic has actually shifted in the last one, two years. And you could see their influence is starting to wane. And we're going into a world where it's no longer about the relationship, it's about the platform. I think is this... Are these agencies going to start having the domino effect because they are really starting to collapse in the European side and the US side? Do you think that they will start to decay even in Asia? Because Asia itself is, is going to change the, their own uh, advertising dynamic. Just virtually China itself or even Japan with Tens, uh, Denzel, for example. Do you think that that dynamic is changing as well? Yeah, look, I think there are so many things at play here. The ability for, you know, advertising agencies to continue to make money. As, you know, we're seeing the trend of, you know, content to commerce growing massively. I mean, I think, you know, the trend is greatest in China, but you're also seeing it in the US. You know, China, you know, what Alibaba did was create a search engine for products. And they, they brought retail to many parts of China that didn't have retail. So, you know, and, and that and, and the way that, you know, that Alibaba was able to kind of fund that search is they didn't pay for search, they paid for purchase. So, you know, it's the ultimate, you know, brand or product marketing goal is that, you know, you, you, only, you only pay for an advertising or you only pay when somebody actually purchases. So, you know, the full end-to-end -end that Alibaba has between, you know, the content all the way through to the commerce is nirvana to many, <laughs> to many product marketers. But that kind of, you know, the, the impact of e-commerce is having, I think, is having a greater impact than 
necessarily the power of Facebook or Google, mainly because, like I said right at the start, even though it's easy to book advertising on Facebook and Google, the human gets in the way and they still phone up their agency to say, I don't really understand this. Can you help me with it? And in many cases, even the advertisers who are taking this kind of thing on themselves are employing agency people inside their inside their own their own businesses. So, I mean, there's so much happening. I mean, obviously, Martin Sorrell stepping down as, as head of WPP, you know, starts people drawing into question whether the big groups are still worthwhile. You know, Ogilvy, one of the big groups within, within WPP, has just broken down all of their silos and effectively become a single organization. You know, what used to happen is they'd have PR team, they'd have a digital team, they'd have a creative advertising team, etc. And they, they've, there was, was at least... Externally, all of those barriers, have, have uh, those internal silos have been broken down now, so they you know, operate as a single organization. So, it, you know, a lot is changing. I mean, clearly, the power of, of China is, and, and, the, and the big platforms in China has a massive impact on, on especially the Asia-Pacific ad spend. One of the things that Alibaba did was, in terms of how you set up on the platform, is they created, you know, you have to work with an organization to help you set up on, your, on, on Tmall, etc. So, you know, they created a new kind of advertising agency, which is basically the, the merchandising or the, you know, the organization that helps brands set up on, on, on the Alibaba set of platform. So the structure is going to change. I don't think necessarily that, you know, the likes of Unilever or the likes of, you know, any organization is going to want to truly take on the full advertising mix. And, you know, it just means that the sales and distribution team, well, before they dealt with bricks and mortar organizations are dealing more and more with, with online retail. So it's, it's just, I think it's just a change. It's a shifting of the deck chairs. I don't think it's, you know, a failure one of one particular side. It's just the growth and, and evolution of, of this whole ecosystem. From my perspective, I'm actually watching a couple of US digital advertising companies, fully digital. The, the non-WPPs are actually starting to move into these markets, into Asia-Pacific markets. I think centered a lot on China. Outbreak Asia-Pacific into three parts. The developed, which is like the cities like Singapore, Tokyo, and Australia, New Zealand. The developing, the Malaysia, the Thailand, the Philippines, and then the frontier markets like the Myanmar's or even North Korea at some point, you know, given what has happened recently here as well. You see these three different markets types have different perspective to the advertising. So this is where I'm going to pivot a bit to come to talking to you about where is the customer when it comes to access for content from these devices? Is it through just streaming or is, is it through just downloading? That is the answer to this question changes every every few months. Yeah. What was the current feud then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, so there's no doubt about that the customer is very happy consuming, let's call it television content on, on mobile devices. Outside of China, India leads the way, you know, pretty much 50% of the internet population, which grew 200 million last year down to our friends at Reliance and Geo have subscribed, and I use this word in, in kind of with air quotes, have subscribed to a service. So it's amazingly popular. It's not it definitely not emerging. It's not just early adopter. It's definitely moving into more mainstream adoption. And the research that we did, we actually just did some research with YouGov in different markets. We looked at Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, and India. And we don't what the, you know the result of this research was that the customer doesn't really see any difference in terms of the you know between how they're consume, consuming tv content you know they say some markets say they you know the pc might be their favorite or the tv might be their favorite or the mobile device there's a healthy mix between those so it's only the establishment which still differentiates 
you know, the different the, the distribution technology. The customer is already there and they're consuming however it makes sense for them to consume. And incidentally, you know, people in Asia are, are very are put up with a lot of friction. You know, we see this in online selling through Instagram and WhatsApp and etc. But, you know, we put up a lot with a lot of friction to get to the content and the products that we like. While the ecosystem might not be fully formed yet, we're quite happy to consume content in that way. Part of that friction is actually because of prevention of privacy of original content for both video and more generally for things like streaming and downloading. So where where is that going for the Asia customer then, in terms of the piracy side? I mean, one of the biggest issues that, that faces the, you know, the, the future of the global district distribution of, of, of television content is the, the legacy, for want of a better word, you know, rights agreements that are already in place. You know, so when, when Netflix uh, went global, they still had local distribution rights with, you know, the pay TV organizations, etc., to deliver their content. And in many cases, you know, you'll be able to access, so we've got the World Cup going on at the moment, and depending on which country you are, you know, either a free-to-air broadcaster has the rights or a pay TV broadcaster has the rights, or maybe there's no rights. So, you know, everyone's scrabbling to find the best way, which is most affordable to access that content. Of course, in that environment, piracy prevails. You know, so it, 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 is, a, it is an incredible issue. You only have to go to SimLim in Singapore to see, you know, the Android boxes, which seem to have every single television channel on them coming out of China. And people are paying for those services. This is what makes me, me smile. You know, they're paying for, they're buying an Android box and then they're paying a license fee to, to, to effectively illegally stream content. So the laws will catch up. But I think there's a big enough growth now in the consumption of online television. There's a big enough growth market that locking down privacy isn't first on the list of, of the content owners' uh, needs yet. But it will get there because it's growing very, very quickly. Another thing on a pure, to answer that question from a pure technology point of view, the technology exists at the moment to very effectively monitor you know, illegal streaming and to stop uh, illegal distribution of you know, DRM, watermarking of content, etc. But in that situation, it requires the whole television ecosystem to, you know, to do the to deploy the same uh, technology. So if you're a tier three broadcaster in a small market, then you may want to not want to pay for watermarking, or you may not want to pay for DRM on your distribution, or you may be lax about your, you know, studio studio security protocols. So, you know, these things get out. But at the moment, I don't think uh, while it's, it's it's a very big topic, especially for organisations like Casbah, I think there's enough growth in the business that, that will, you know, before the, the companies, television companies and, and ecosystem really address it. Okay, the hard question. Does customers in Asia, Pacific, you can also break it down by countries, really respond to advertising? <laughs> Actually, this, and you will, I know you especially will be surprised at this. Asian, so let's call it emerging Asia. So this isn't Singapore where you can go and buy anything within a mile of your house, within a kilometre of your house. But emerging Asia, where retail is not so well distributed, we love advertising. Yeah, we in fact, in our research, we looked at the interest to of you know whether people would prefer to pay for content with no advertising, or whether would you know people would be happy for you know adverts to, to come with their with their television content. And actually, in India, especially, they said I would I'd be quite happy to watch two. Usually, this kind of question would be answered by Yeah, I'm happy to have one, and then you know lesser people would say two or three, and it would be you know a tail off. More people said I'm happy to see to watch two ads than you know than none. So so the two things happening there: one is people see the value exchange. You know, advertising has has partnered television content for many people's lives. So they say, okay, I, I'm I'm happy with that contract. You show me some ads, and I will and I get the content for free. 
Two, actually, people like ads because because in many situations it's product discovery. You know, they they like relevant ads and they're more open to advertising because you know they may not be able to find those products in local retail and they and you know we have more brand new consumers in this region than anywhere else in the world. And those new consumers, you know, while the internet is an amazing place now, are not able to you know have don't really know what's out there. So they're really interested in finding, seeing what products there are and are, and are much more open to advertising than a market like the United States, which is just, they're absolutely deluged in advertising messages on a daily basis. So it's a, it's a very different. My last question before we close, I want to know, you wrote an article on Facebook versus Tencent in Southeast Asia. What are your thoughts now? And do you think that things are going to start to change? in this region for Facebook and Tencent? Yes. When I was working with Facebook on the advertising side of things, I was constantly frustrated. They would bring technologies to to market only in the US. They would test them in small markets and regions in the US when actually the there's more opportunity for those technologies to work in emerging markets or mobile centric markets of of Asia. I that's what I've always felt. I thought, you know, this is wasted on on the US where, you know, you know, things like mobile payment, things like enabling stores, etc. Americans have, have an amazingly high number of ways to pay for everything. They have an amazingly high number of stores. They, you know, they use uh, e-commerce for convenience. They don't need a software company like Facebook to solve a problem for them because they don't have any problems buying things. Whereas, you know, we've seen in Tencent and Alibaba to a certain extent, you know, solve real problems for people in terms of access to products and, and the ability to pay. Really, I'm sure China has its, it is behind the firewall and has its, own kind of Galapagos kind of environment, but I think they're more tuned into the challenges of Asia than than, than Facebook. Yeah, so I, my my feeling is, you know, we actually we had this question at IAB Commerce meeting the other day. You know, who do you look to? And uh, this was an asked uh, an asked to the local e-commerce platforms. And they said, who do you look to? Do you look east or west for inspiration? I think the impact of of the east is 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 felt more viscerally here now than than potentially what's happening in in the US. I think that the Mastercard and Visa has actually lost that opportunity in order to try to localize for this emerging Asian market. And the Tencent and Alibaba's payment infrastructures are actually meant for these markets. And I think that it wouldn't be a very short-term thing. In the long term, the Tencent Alibaba payment infrastructures are going to kill Visa and MasterCard in the region because they, they have refused to localize for a very long time. I mean, this is the narrative of the 1990s, the 2000s. Because of this unwillingness to invest in the infrastructure, I think it's going to be the same for Facebook and Google, not to their large extent, but I think this is where it's going now for this region if the US companies are not careful enough. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't know whether necessarily that MasterCard and Visa have lost the battle. You know, I, I think they, it's so fragmented in this region that, you know, a couple of good purchases of, of emerging technologies or, you know, a strong alliance with mobile telcos could potentially, you know, create the killer app. But it's clear that, you know, the experience that Alibaba and, and Tencent have with enabling mobile payment is is tremendous but then you see you know then you see gopay in indonesia and you see you know grab trying to do something similar you know i think i think there's still a lot to play for i don't think you could say that anyone has lost outside of china one of the most powerful things that tencent and alibaba have is is the chinese consumer going out into the into the region and you know and using and and then enabling that platform their platforms in the region so that's how they that's how they expand you know their organizations i think i think harrods i don't know whether you've ever heard of harrods it's a uk department store it's one of the biggest alipay stores in the world i think in terms of the amount of volume per customer 
So, you know, the, the growth of, of Alipay and, and Tencent Pay is going to be to start off with on the back of the of the Chinese tourist. And then, you know, if they get a foothold then and, and, and they buy well in Southeast Asia, then we could see them, you know, heavily dominating in this region. So, Greg, many thanks for coming on the show and you are going to come on again. So, in closing, first... Can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything else that recently impacted your personal work life? So I'm a fan. Actually, I have a love-hate relationship with Malcolm Gladwell. I, lo- I love the way that he thinks. So I love. I, I, I find his delivery and his writing very irritating, but he always makes me think differently about everything. And so, so actually, I've taken up listening to NPR, uh, and I find it's a very good discovery process for, for for getting you know listening to podcasts etc and i've just been catching up on malcolm gladwell through the npr platform so that's definitely my recommendation for yeah talking about the revisionist history podcast i probably recommend one book that recently i have read is called lost in math i was a former theoretical physicist and this pro- book has probably depicted very interesting discussions on where the field is going and some of the issues that are going with the field itself for being too lost in math because of things like Supersymmetry and string theory. For all those physics buffs out there who like it, this will be a book to read. My last question to you where can my audience find you? I'm on LinkedIn, Greg Armshaw. I'm also on Twitter, if anyone uses that, at Innovation. And you can find me at Bernard Leung, and you can Google me. You can find Analyze Asia on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAS, and many other channels. Of course, subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A N A L Y S E Asia. Please give us a five star ratings on iTunes and or star on Overcast Pocket Cast. And of course, tweet to me on your feedback. We're going to be launching a listener survey because we want to get to know who our 20,000K subscribers really are. And Greg, you probably have to help me with the survey too. Sure. <laughs> Given that you're yeah, a listener. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and once again, Greg, many thanks for coming on the show. Bernard, thanks a lot. Appreciate it.